0: God's Word, please turn to uh, the letter of James in the New Testament. This is our fall study. It's our second sermon in our fall study. And so we're going to finish up chapter 1 today uh, looking at verses 19 through 27. James chapter 1, verses 19 through 27. I'll read those for us. this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray, Father. We thank you. Um, we're so thankful for your word. Um, where where would we be without it? I have no idea. But I am so thankful that you've given it to us um, that we can. Um, live in a country that can freely open this book and uh, read it and proclaim it and learn from it and apply it. And I pray that we would do uh, all of those things well Um, as we sit here, but also as we leave this place, God, um, even now just praying that we would be not merely hearers of your word, but we would be doers. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what words do you live by? I know as, as Americans, we, we live by the Constitution uh, and the laws that govern our country. Uh, in your jobs, you have certain criteria and rules that you have to, have to work by to accomplish uh, what you have to accomplish in your vocation. Uh, in your schools, you have rules and standards you, you have to abide by and to fulfill. One, to graduate and to do well in school, but also to stay out of trouble. But I would ask you, what do you really live by? Because the, the rules and regulations at your job and, and at school, all of those kind of end at the end at the end of the, the workday or the school day. You don't really carry those into everyday life. What do you live by day by day, moment by moment? Is it your own kind of intuitions? Like, if it feels good to me, this is what I'm going to do. Is it, is it your own own moral code that you've, you've possibly set up in your own mind? Is it, is it your own set of rules and regulations? You may even have those written out. These are my rules for life. Well, for the Christian, your standard is ultimately not those outside rules or even the own rules that you create in your mind, but your standard is the very Word of God. I mean, all you have to do is read, read the Bible and you see that, that we, we have passages in the Bible that tell us if our government officials are telling us to do things that go against what God's Word says, the Bible says strongly we are to disobey them. And then you have in other places, you have clear prohibitions and and directions on, uh, on speaking about certain types of destructive lifestyles that are celebrated in our culture. So obviously, God's word stands outside of the rules of this world. And so this morning in our text, James lays these words that we are to live by as the church of Jesus Christ, he lays these words before us in three ways. And he does this by showing us, one, the implanted word, two, the reflective word, and then three, the practiced word. The implanted word, the reflective word, and the practice word. And you have a, a note sheet. I had complaints last week there was no note sheet. You have one now, okay? So no emails. Three points. So first, the implanted word. Look at verse 19. James begins, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. So what does James want us to know here? Well, simply he wants us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Why? Well, verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of god so it's interesting and kind of curious that james begins uh, would choose to hone in on something so specific as anger And, and while he's not attempting to give you to give you three easy steps to manage your anger he is saying that anger has serious implications to not just your relationship to others but in your relationship to god john calvin said he says Uh, He said, "For, For God cannot be heard except when the mind is calm and sedate. As long as wrath bears rule, there is no place for the righteousness of God. And I think we all know what John Calvin is talking about, don't we? How often have you regretted words spoken in the heat of the moment? How often have you kind of uh, 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 lost your mind temporarily, maybe just on your own because you're angry at a particular situation that's happening at work or in school or with your spouse, and you just completely started thinking a different way. The ancient Romans had a saying about anger. They said, anger is a brief madness. And all of us have felt that madness time to time so much so that it hinders rational, logical thinking and speaking, even towards those that you would say that you love most, that you love deeply, you get angry. So James is saying that anger will even hinder your relationship with God. So you have uh, in Paul's list of sins in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, half of the sins that he lists belong in the anger category. Just to name a few, he says hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. And then he goes on to say, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Anger is an emotional response that can lead to sin. And so it's something you should listen to when you find yourself getting angry. So you should ask yourself these questions. When you find yourself getting angry, what makes you angry? Who makes you angry? Why are you getting angry? And this is, this is really important. These are really important questions to ask because emotions reveal how you're doing with God. Because most of the time, when we think about anger, most of the time it is on this horizontal level. I am angry at so-and-so. I am angry at this particular situation. So it's, it's a horizontal level toward, toward another individual. But in a deeper sense, what James is saying here is that your emotions, your anger specifically, reveals what's happening on a vertical level between you and God. In their book, um, The Cry of the Soul How Our Emotions Reveal Our Deepest Questions About God, Dan Allinger and Trimper Longman, they, they say that, they, that our emotions, all of our emotions, all of our emotions boil down to this one question Am I moving toward God or away from Him? Am I moving toward God or away from Him? Because you remember, James's point here is his goal in his letter is the spiritual wholeness of the church or or the spiritual maturity of the church. He's a pastor. And so according to to Paul in Ephesians 4, this, this should be your pastor's goal. Not just behavioral change, but a change of the heart is what James is digging at here. So this is James actually saying to his readers, here is how you grow in righteousness. Here is how you move toward God, not away from Him. Because that's what righteousness is, isn't it? Righteousness is a moving toward God. So in the context of James, we have to see what he's trying to communicate here in verse 20, because... He says, anger doesn't produce this sort of righteousness. And in this, James is implying to his readers that there is righteousness that is to be produced in the lives of Christians. So, just let me be clear. This is going to come up a lot in James, so I'm probably going to say this over and over again. But, It is not something that makes you righteous. So this producing is not something that is making you righteous. It's not making you right before God. That is what Christ has done. You are righteous in Christ already. But this is a righteousness that flows out of the righteousness you already possess in Christ. So make sure we keep that in the forefront of our minds as we move through this. Jesus used this word righteousness in the same sense in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, when he says to his followers, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So how does James say you get there? Well, two ways. In verse 21, he gives a negative aspect and he gives a positive aspect. Look at verse 21. James says, Therefore, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. So you have this negative aspect. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. So the biblical use of this phrase "put away" is communicating to uh, James's reader is is it's a it's a. Kind of a visual of taking something off, specifically taking off dirty clothes that are hindering what you are trying to do. So you could kind of think about this uh, just in your everyday life, is that you are getting rid of something that is hindering you from pursuing a goal. So maybe you want to shed a few pounds. You're going to want to put away the junk food. Maybe you want to, to, to spend less time on your phone, so, you, so you'll need to put away Instagram and Twitter and Facebook to do so. To put these things away in order to pursue the ultimate goal. But so James is saying that if you want to grow in righteousness, if you want to move toward God, putting away all filthiness and rampant wickedness is a must. And anger is included in that list. Paul sums it up this way in Ephesians 4, 22-24. He says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So the positive aspect of this, of, of James's way, of sa- is, is, is to say, take this off, take this off which is hindering you, and now put this on. By receiving with meekness the implanted word. So obviously, if you're, if you're receiving the implanted word, it's not something that you earn, but it's something that is given to you. That the, that the implanted word is something that, that takes up, or should at least, take up residence within believers. So this is something James is, is highlighting from Jeremiah 31 that, that Bonnie read for us earlier when, when after uh, just the context of Jeremiah 31, uh, after repeated failures of Israel to live up to the terms of the Mosaic Covenant, they just kept failing and failing and failing, and they just couldn't do it, Jeremiah announces that God is establishing a new covenant with them. And within this new covenant, God promises to put his law, to put his word, within his people, to implant his law in them. Jeremiah 31, 33. This is the covenant, this is God's being, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. Why is that important? Well, because the implanted word, James says, is what is able to save your souls. That's why it's important. That's why God, God stepped in here and says, I am going to put my law on their minds, and I'm going, to, I'm going to write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. So this is obviously not a command to unbelievers here, but this is a command to believers To the believer, this means that these words are directed to you to allow the word to influence every part of your life, every sphere that you are involved in throughout the week. James is saying that the word is to be influencing those areas in which you tread. And you demonstrate that reality by your humble acceptance of the word as your only authority and rule for life. Is the Word of God that for you? Is the Scriptures your ultimate authority and rule for life, or is it just another book on your shelf that you take off maybe on a Sunday? Well, this is a really important question to answer because obedience to the Word is the mark of genuine Christianity. Uh, the uh, James scholar Miriam Colvicine makes this important point for us in her commentary because this is a point that's going to keep coming up in James. And you can even see James uh, starting to build his argument for what he's going to say later in his letter concerning faith and works. She writes this She says, It's not obedience that does the saving, the word is what has the power to save souls but it can reach its effect only when it's received in purity and humility. And so James begins to drive this point home uh, home for us even further in our second point that concerns itself with how the Word of God is the reflective Word, which means that the Word of God reflects back who you are. So look at verse 22. James says, But be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So how do you know, you might be asking this question, how do you know if you've humbly received God's implanted word? James says in these verses, you're doing it. You're actually doing the word of God. That's how you know you've received. Again, this is something James is repeating from his brother Jesus, the Messiah. Remember, I told, us, told you last week that, that a lot of what James is saying, he is just kind of uh, regurgitating what Jesus has said from the Gospels. And so Jesus says something similar in Luke chapter 11, verse 28, when he says, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Uh, Douglas Moo, who's a genius New Testament Uh, scholar and commentator wrote this he says in his message of the kingdom jesus announced the overwhelming amazing wonder of god's sovereign grace reaching down to reclaim sinful people for himself but no one emphasized as strongly as jesus the need for people touched by god's grace to respond with a radical world renouncing obedience Both the gracious initiative of God and the grateful response of human beings are necessary aspects of the gospel. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. That's what James is telling us. So what James is suggesting here is that if you fail to do the word, you are a person who has not truly received the word. So if you're a person that's here today and you think sitting in a service like this once a week um, and only listening to a sermon is sufficient for your spiritual health and growth, James says you are deceived. You're deceived. If you think reading a a short devotional in the morning before work or school uh, with no application, meaning you just read it and you say, that's good, I checked it off the box, I'm going to leave it there, and I'm going to go and live life the way in which I want to live in my workplace or at school, James says, and you still think you're walking with Jesus, James says you are lying to yourself. Now, this is not an idea that James came up with. This is not his original thought. The Greek and Roman philosophers of that day also taught this same idea of practicing what you preach. It was, it was a normal idea. So when James's readers heard this, they, they were like, yeah, he's right. You, we, we need to practice what we preach. We need to do what the scriptures are telling us to do. We need to live like Christians. Uh, The Jews, they lived the exact same way. Paul gives the Jewish perspective in Romans chapter 2, verse 13. He's speaking about the Jews. It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. So to help his readers better understand what he's saying here, James uses the metaphor of looking into a mirror in verses 23 through 24. So he's comparing... Comparing the word to a mirror. So he says this. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So hopefully you can see the the irony in James' words here because that's what he wants you to see. He wants you to see this irony that if, that, if, that if you are only a hearer of the word and not a doer, you are like this man who, who looks at himself in the mirror and then as soon as he leaves the mirror, as soon as he leaves the reflection of himself, he forgets what he just saw. He forgets his own reflection. He forgets every blemish that he possibly saw there and he does nothing as he leaves the mirror. And that seems impossible and even absurd, but James's point is for you to see that the same absurdity applies to those who call themselves Christian, who hear the word, their moment of, of looking, of, of peering into the mirror, and then do nothing once they leave it. And let me just say this is detrimental to your faith. Detrimental. It will crush you. Because one of the basic purposes of God's word is to give you true self-knowledge, to reveal who you truly are, to see yourself as God sees you. It's a real mirror. And this is why it's so devastating for you to to look at yourself in God's word and and then walk away forgetting what it says of you. And what is it saying? I mean, throughout the Bible, what is it saying? Well, it says this, over and over and over and over again. This is how Tim Keller puts it. He says, that you are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared that is what the word is saying to you over and over and over again. And when you walk away and forget it, you are forgetting that. You're not just forgetting to, to drop money in the plate on a Sunday. You're not just forgetting to be, to be kind and, and, and to your neighbor or to, to, to love your children well. You are forgetting the gospel. So that, that is the gospel message. And that's the message James says you're forgetting when you are merely a hearer and not a doer. Because it's the gospel message that moves you to action. Look at verse 25. James goes further in his illustration here. He says, But the one who, who looks into the perfect law, the law of liber- liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer he acts, he will be blessed in his doings. So the Greek verb here that is translated looks into has the sense of of stooping down and looking into something closely. So I was moving some wood yesterday in my backyard, um, and I moved a piece of wood, and there was a snake under one of the pieces of wood. Um, I won't tell you what I said or did there at that moment, but I did immediately call for our resident snake expert, which is my son, and he comes running out, and... So in, in, in investigating the snake, we stooped down and looked closely to see its colors, to see its mark. I was a little further away than he was. But we stooped down to look, to look closely because we wanted to identify it. We wanted to see what we were looking at there, and we wanted to see, see it more intently. So James is describing someone looking in this way at the law of God, at the word of God, looking intently, stooping down, investigating it, and studying it, turning it over in their heart and in their mind. And James is describing someone who doesn't just take a a passing glance, but who who is looking intensely at the word, and then acts on what they see. And James says, this is the one who will be blessed in their doing. so let's be doers, Christ the King. But how do we do that? So I'm going to go to C.S. Lewis for this. So C.S. Lewis calls this uh, good pretending, and I love this. It's from Mere Christianity. He calls it good pretending, and this is an extended quote, so I'm going to read it for us, but I I think C.S. Lewis says it way better than I could say it myself. So listen carefully, listen closely. Um, but I think he gets at it, and he's using he's using the uh, using the Lord's Prayer as his example here of what he means by good pretending. He says its very first words are "Our Father." Do you now see what those words mean? They mean, quite frankly, that you are putting yourself in the place of a son of God. To put it bluntly, you are dressing up as Christ. If you like, you are pretending. Because, of course, the moment you realize what the words mean, you realize that you are not a son of God. You are not a being like the Son of God, whose will and interests are at one with those of the Father. You are a bundle of self-centered fears, hopes, greeds, jealousies, and self-conceit, all doomed to death. So that, in a way, this dressing up as Christ is a piece of outrageous cheek. Very brilliant. But the odd thing is, is that he has ordered us to do so. Why? What is the good of pretending to be what you are not? Well, even on the human level, you know, there are two kinds of pretending. There is a bad kind where the pretense is there instead of the real thing, so hypocrisy, as when a man pretends he is going to help you instead of really helping you. But there is also a good kind where the pretense Leads up to the real thing. So what Lewis is saying here is as we do the word, as we are are pretending to be like our elder brother Jesus, that that pretending will, will then lead us again and again and again to Jesus. Over and over again. And that is how we do the word. So we take what we see in Scripture, we take what Jesus is doing, and then we apply it to our lives. It's doing the word. Which leads us into our final and and very practical point, the practice word. Look at verses 26 through 27. James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So in these last two verses James is con- contrasting here between true true religion and a false religion. And he does this by using three marks of what true religion actually looks like. So first in verse 26 he is describing how a person's religion is only based on external appearances rather than inward realities. So, there, so you can see a person that they're, they're acting religious, but with no heart change. To so what, what, what Lewis labeled as hypocrisy. They're acting like they're religious, but they have no change on the inside. And this plays out, James says, in how they speak. And James uses the command that we heard in verse 19, be slow to speak to make this point. Now James is going to go into uh, more extensively the the use of the tongue in chapter 3, and we'll eventually get there. But but I think it's important to see that this, this is another bit of wisdom that James is pulling from the teachings of Jesus. Jesus spoke a lot about the way in which we speak. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 35, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, and this is what he says to them. You broad of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. You can tell a lot about a person in the way they speak. Because your mouth actually reveals what you're thinking, even though you might try to cover some of those things up, it reveals what you're thinking, it reveals what you feel, and it reveals ultimately what you believe is true about reality. Your mouth does all that. Jesus Jesus puts it this way in Matthew 15. He says, "Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, because that's usually what we harp on." is those, those outward things that we see and we, we label as evil or whatever. It's not that what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but Jesus says, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. But Jesus says, those things come out of the mouth, but they're ultimately coming out of your hearts. So the second point that Mark makes, he, or James makes here, is uh, taking care of the helpless, or what we might call social justice. So the widows and orphans in James's day—we don't talk a lot about widows and, and orphans uh, in our day as much, although they exist. <laughs> uh, there's there's lots of them across across the world. But in James's day, these were some of the most marginalized most helpless people in the world because they were unable to provide for themselves uh, financially. They were helpless, literally helpless. So James calls on the church to take up this task of thinking about and providing for the most helpless among them. And you see this in other parts of the scripture where... Uh, actual in, in First Timothy five, Paul is talking to Timothy, and he says to Timothy, "Timothy, this is how you take care of the widows in your church. You make a list, and you and you kind of go, you kind of triage that list, and you make sure they're all taken care of. You make sure those who are younger can can be remarried, maybe, and maybe their family members can take care of them. There's there's a list and a plan for those things. And then you have in um, in Acts chapter six um, the reason one of the reasons the office of deacon was created in the church and established in the church in acts chapter 6 is because widows were being neglected in the church and so they said we need deacons we need we need men and women who can take care of these particular needs in the church so i think some questions that we can ask ourselves as a church and and I can tell you right now, the elders are, are already thinking about how do we do this? How do we, how do we take care of those who are helpless or marginalized in our city and in our world? Is to ask yourself that question. How do I think about the helpless and the marginalized? Do I think outside of myself? And this, and this could include orphans and widows. It could include immigrants who are trying to adjust to a new life in the States, and we have um, lots of that happening right now. This could include the handicapped or the homeless. And then as we think about that, how do we think about those people? How do we, how do we, how do we think about that? Then, then we have to ask, how then do we treat them? What can we do as the body of Christ to care for those who are most helpless? I'd love to hear your answers. Some point. Well, the third mark that that, um, that James gives us of true religion is is less concrete, but it's but it lets us know that while social justice is necessary, it is not sufficient for true religion. James says to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, James again is hinting back to the previous verses in verse twenty one when James tells us. To put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. This is the same idea that James is communicating here in this last verse. And this is another teaching of, of Jesus that James hints at when Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5 um, to, to be salt of the earth. To essentially say to us that we, are to, that we are to be a people who are in the world, but not of the world. That we don't just live in this, in this uh, nice, clean, Christian bubble where we don't let the world inside and we kind of keep those things out and we avoid those people who aren't aren't Christians. uh, But Jesus is telling us, no, that's not how we live our lives. He even prays for us in John 17, I didn't ask for you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. But we are to keep ourselves unstained by the world especially when we're in it every single day. It's really, it's really easy to be influenced by the world. And it's really subtle. It's really subtle. And so keeping yourself unstained from the world requires you to live by the word of God. Because these are the words that guide your speech. These are the words that conduct your living. These are the words that, that ultimately change what's going on in your heart. Nothing else meets that criteria in your life. Now, I want to just be clear to say that James is not saying what James is not saying here is that these are the only marks of pure religion. So some of you might be thinking, well, if I can just get those three down, then I am doing good. This is not what James is saying. He's not saying there's only three marks of pure religion, and if you can get them down, you got it going on. They're not only three marks, but they're, they're no less than these three marks. We can't pick and choose what we want to do as Christians. So, so what James wants the church to see, what he wants you to see, is that Christianity is not a stagnant religion. Like you, you just can't walk about your day claiming Christianity, claiming that you know Jesus, and never do what he tells you to do. You can't do that. Because Christianity doesn't hold up to that, because it's not stagnant. So James is saying, if Jesus has saved you, if Jesus has saved you, that you can now see yourself in Jesus and do the word that leads you over and over again to him, who is the real thing. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your your word. God, I'm so thankful for, for James and his boldness to, um, to be able to just come out of the gate and his letter to the church and say, um, this, this is what you must do. And so, God, I pray that we would be a people who do the word, that we would be doers of the word and not mere hearers. And even, even right right now as we leave this place we have practical application because we've heard your word and now we must do it as you tell us to so god help us to be faithful to that help us not to to try to do it in our own strength but to but to do it in the strength that you give us in christ and it's in his name that we pray